0: The Conversations at the Interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. You can support this series by coming to a live event, spreading the word, or making a donation. Find out more at theinterval.org. Thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming to the interval uh, in in the middle of the day. I hope this is uh, this will be inspiring. It will increase your productivity. Uh, having uh, I'm sure stepped away from a lot of busy things. Um, this is this is a really special event. We're we're so appreciative to Neil. He he fit us in on his schedule uh, amongst uh, a a busy uh, busy tour that was already going on. So. Um, Thank you, and thank you all for, for being here. Give yourselves a, a round of applause to get us started today. I, we've had a long association with Neil and are a big fan of his work um, and, uh, and happy to continue that. And also uh, really appreciative of Neil because he was a contributor to our Brickstarter and helped us to build uh, the Interval. So we're, we're happy to welcome here for the first time since we finished it. Um, so, please give a big hand of applause, round of applause for Long Now co-founder Stuart Brand, who's going to introduce Neil.
1: I'm so used to saying good evening. Do I have a sound, by the way? Yep. Am I amplifying? Good. You can hear me. I can't. Um, this is not a good evening deal. It's barely you know, afternoon. Thank you for coming. The um, Manual of Civilization up here, which is still collecting, is a body of books meant to be useful for any civilization that wants to keep going for a long time, or if something bad happens, uh, be able to start over basically from scratch. And in this library are uh, a collection of first-rate, hard science, science fiction books. All of Neal Stephenson's books are in there, including the new one, and especially Anathem, (laughs) Which is, you know, got a long now clock in the middle of it. And the current book has a restart civilization aspect to it. We'll talk about that some. But what makes Neil's books, I think, especially accessible and uh, nerdism at its best is that it's really engineering fiction. Uh, He very rarely evokes a miraculous, well, we can travel faster than light or something like that. Um, And in fact, the current book, as far as I know, has nothing miraculous in it whatsoever. Everything plays out in terms of orbital dynamics and knowable biotechnology. And uh, therefore is a completely plausible engineering fiction story um, that also doesn't have to imagine Uh, the beginning, a far distant, strange future, but pretty much starts from where we are, which is what civilizations always have to do, is start from where they are. Uh, Let's get Neil Stevenson up here to start us from where we are. Thanks Stuart.
2: Um, And thanks for coming out uh, in the middle of the day. when I was a kid, I used to ride my bike to the bookmobile in Ames, Iowa, and check out whatever new science fiction had come in that uh, uh, that that week. And uh, at some point, I checked out a book whose name and author i have forgotten, um, which was a space arc book. It was about a global catastrophe that forced the people of Earth to... Uh, construct a, an arc and and send a small number of survivors into space and um, I guess it made a big impression on me because now, uh, almost half a century later uh, i've I've written one. It took me a long time because it turns out that if you're going to make a contribution to the space arc subgenre, uh, you have to come up with an incredibly finely calibrated disaster scenario so if uh asteroid comes out of nowhere tomorrow and destroys the Earth, uh, I can't make a space arc book out of that because we don't have time to build the arc. And if, if we see a disaster coming hundreds of years in the future, we'll probably solve the problem instead of going the arc route. So <clears throat> it has to be predictable far enough in advance that you, there's just enough time to build an arc, but not so far in advance that you could just prevent it from, from happening. So that's pretty hard. Um, so um, the, uh, uh, that idea was kind of dormant uh, for quite a while, until about 10 years ago I was working part-time at Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos's um, private commercial space company up in Seattle. And I was looking for a while at the problem of space debris, orbiting junk that we've put up there since the beginning of the space age, spent rocket boosters, uh, dead satellites, Uh, things that were dropped by astronauts on spacewalks. Um, And it's all zooming around up there in low Earth orbit. And uh, occasionally two of these items will collide with each other. And uh, and because of their enormous velocities, that means they'll shatter and kind of spray out smaller fragments in a whole family of new orbits. And uh, the specter has been raised by some orbit, some space scientists, that this could become an exponential process, uh, and suddenly, over a short period of time, so many of these fragments could be generated that it would render uh, space a no-go zone. We wouldn't be able to go up there safely in the way that we've become accustomed to. Um, so that was actually not very useful uh, as far as the, that company was concerned, but. It did sort of set a bit in my in my novelist brain, and um, and it occurred to me that that mechanism could be used to destroy the world if if it could be implemented on a much larger scale. All I had to do was get a whole bunch of crap into orbit to to uh, to reproduce that phenomenon, and um, so the way that I ended up doing that was by blowing up the moon. So, on the first sentence of the first page of this book, the moon blows up suddenly and for no apparent reason uh, and separates into seven large chunks. That all They're all up there kind of floating around the moon's former center of gravity. They're still orbiting the earth, but they're all kind of drifting and, and milling around at random. And um, there's a character in the book um, named Dubois Jerome Xavier Harris, who's a person uh, an astrophysicist at Caltech. Uh, so he's a legit scientist, but he's also a, uh, uh, a science popularizer. He's one of these people who can go on the Today Show, you know, and, and talk about science uh, in an understandable way. So, needless to say, uh, his, Dub's phone, he, go, he goes by Dube informally, and his phone begins to ring immediately after the moon blows up and doesn't stop ringing for a long time. Um, and so, in the course of uh, trying to calm people down and, and try to, you know, get people thinking about this as an interesting science problem, one of the things he does is give names to the seven big pieces of the moon. And he doesn't want to give them scary names like Thor or Nemesis. So uh, he gives them. He names them Potato Head, Mr. Spinny, Acorn, Peach Pit, Scoop, Big Boy, and Kidney Bean. Um, And um, that lasts for about a week until two of them collide at random and kidney bean breaks in half. So now there's eight pieces instead of seven. And the scientist brain in him says, well, if we can go from seven pieces to eight pieces in a week, how long does it take to go from eight to nine and so on and what implications might that have? So we joined the action, I'm just going to read for about maybe five minutes here. We joined the action uh, about four days later. Uh, He's meeting with the the president uh, and some advisors at at Camp David. Um, My friend and colleague Bruce Sterling uh, once said that a thriller was a science fiction novel that includes the President of the United States. (laughs) so uh, I guess this is this is one of those. Uh, it 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 seems very strange to just blithely begin writing the president into a, a book, but th- that's what you do when you're writing one of these. So <clears throat> we need to stop asking ourselves what happened and start talking about what is going to happen. Dr. Harris said to the president of the United States, her science advisor the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and about half of the Cabinet. He could see that the President didn't like that, Julia Bliss Flaherty, currently nearing the end of her first year on that job. The Chairman of the JCS was nodding, but President Flaherty was giving him a hard, squinting look, and not just because of the light coming in the window from the skies over Camp David. She thought he was up to something, trying to shift blame, trying to push some kind of new agenda. Go on, she said, then remembering her manners, Dr. Harris. Four days ago, I watched Kidney Bean break in half, Doob said. The seven sisters became eight. Since then, we've seen a near miss that could have fractured Mr. Spinney. I would almost welcome it, said the president, if we could get rid of those ridiculous names. It'll happen, Doob said. The question is, how long does Mr. Spinney have to live, and what does that tell us? He clicked a small remote in his hand and brought up a slide on the big screen. Heads turned toward it and he felt a mild sense of relief at not being stared at anymore by the president. The slide was a montage of a snowball rolling down a hill, a fuzzy bacterial culture growing in a petri dish, a mushroom cloud, and other seemingly unrelated phenomena. What do all these have in common? They're exponential, he said. The word gets tossed around a lot by people who use it to mean anything that's getting big fast, but it has a specific mathematical meaning. It means any process where the more it happens, the more it happens. The population explosion, a nuclear chain reaction, a snowball rolling down a hill whose speed of growth is pegged to how much it's grown. He clicked through another slide showing plots of exponential curves on a graph, then to an image of the moon's eight pieces. When the moon had only one piece, the probability of a collision was zero, he said. Because there was nothing to collide with, Pete Starling, the president's science advisor, explained. The president nodded. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Starling. When you have two pieces, why then, yes, they can collide. The more pieces you get, the higher the chances of any two pieces banging into each other. But what happens when they bang into each other? He clicked the control again and showed a little movie of Kidney Bean's breakup. Well, sometimes, but not always, they break in half, which means you have more pieces, eight instead of seven, nine instead of eight, and that increase in number means an increase in the odds (coughs) of further collisions. It's an exponential, said the chairman. It occurred to me four days ago that it did have all the earmarks of an exponential process, Doob allowed, and we know what happens to those. President Flaherty had been watching him intently but she now flicked her eyes over at Pete Starling who made a dramatic upward zooming gesture with one hand tracing the profile of a hockey stick. When an exponential hits the bend in the hockey stick curve, Dube said, the result can be indistinguishable from a detonation or it can look like a slow steady increase. It all depends on the time constant, the inherent speed with which the exponential thing happens and on how we perceive it as humans. So it might be nothing, said the chairman. It could be that a hundred years will pass before we go from eight chunks to nine chunks, Doob said, nodding at him. But four days ago, I got worried that it might be one of those things that looks more like an explosion. So my grad students and I have been crunching some numbers, building a mathematical model of the process that we can use to get a handle on the time scale. And what are your results, Dr. Harris? I assume you have some or else you wouldn't be here. The good news is that the Earth is one day going to have a beautiful system of rings just like Saturn. The bad news is that it's going to be messy. In other words, said Pete Starling, the chunks of the moon are going to keep banging into each other indefinitely and breaking up into smaller and smaller pieces, spreading out into a system of rings. But some rocks are going to fall on the ground and break things. And can you tell me, Dr. Harris, when this is going to happen? Over what period of time? The President asked. We're still gathering data, tuning the model's parameters, Dube said, so my estimates could all be off by a factor of two, maybe three. Exponentials are tricky that way. But what it looks like to me is this. He clicked through to a new graph, a blue curve showing a slow, steady climb over time. The timescale at the bottom is something like one to three years. During that time, the number of collisions and the number of new fragments are going to grow steadily. What is BFR? asked Pete Starling, for the graph's vertical scale was labeled thus. Bolide fragmentation rate, Doob said, the rate at which new rocks are being produced. Is that a standard term? Pete wanted to know. His tone was not so much hostile as unnerved. No, Doob said. I made it up yesterday on the plane. He was tempted to add something like, I am allowed to coin terms, but didn't want things to get snarky this early in the meeting. Seeing that Pete had been silenced, at least for the moment, Doob tried to get back into his rhythm. We'll see an increasing number of meteorite impacts. Some will cause great damage, but overall life is not going to change that much. But then he clicked again and the plot bent sharply upward, turning white. We are going to witness an event that I'm calling the white sky. It'll happen over hours or days. The system of discrete planetoids that we can see up there now is going to grind itself up into a vast number of much smaller fragments. They're going to turn into a white cloud in the sky and that cloud is going to spread out. Click. The graph continued shooting upward, rocketing up into a new domain and turning red. A day or two after the white sky event will begin a thing I am calling the hard rain because not all of those rocks are going to stay up there. Some of them are going to fall into the Earth's atmosphere." He turned the projector off. This was an unusual move, but it snapped them all out of PowerPoint hypnosis and forced them to look at him. The aides in the back of the room were still thumbing their phones, but they didn't matter. By some, Dube said, I mean trillions. The room remained silent. It is going to be a meteorite bombardment such as the Earth has not seen since the primordial age when the solar system was formed," Dube said. Those fiery trails we've been seeing in the sky lately as the meteorites come in and burn up, there will be so many of those that they will merge into a dome of fire that will set aflame anything that can see it. The entire surface of the Earth is going to be sterilized. Glaciers will boil. The only way to survive is to get away from the atmosphere. Go underground or go into space." Well, obviously that is very hard news if it is true, the president said. They all sat and thought about it silently for a period of time that might have been one minute or five. We will have to do both, the president said. Go into space and underground. Obviously the latter is easier. Yes. We can get to work building underground bunkers for – and she caught herself before saying something impolitic – for people to take refuge in. Dube didn't say anything. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said, Dr. Harris, I'm an old logistics guy. I deal in stuff. How much stuff do we need to get underground? How many sacks of potatoes and rolls of toilet paper per occupant? I guess what I'm asking is just how long is the hard rain going to last? Doob said, my best estimate is that it will last somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000 years. <laughs> so that's the setup of the, the book. It's pretty early. Um, oh, thanks. Just to kind of give some intuition for this, the, um, uh, a couple years ago a meteorite came in over at Chelyabinsk in Russia. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm sure some of you saw pictures of the fiery trail in the sky, maybe saw some of the dashboard video that was posted on the Internet. And the thing that was remarkable to me about the dashboard video was that it pretty much maxed out the video cameras. It was obviously much brighter than the sun. Well, it turns out that um, some of the people who were there, who stood there and watched this trail of fire go overhead, got sunburned. So even though the duration of the event was only a, a few moments, during that amount of exposure, they got sunburned badly enough that a few days later, they peeled. So what that tells you is that the, the light coming out of that bolide was more like the light of an arc welder, uh, and less like the, the light of a, of a candle. Um, and so you can imagine that if the sky were full of things emitting that kind of, of radiation, uh, what that would be like. Um, so anyway, that is my uh, my setup to write an ARC novel. And uh, I won't go into a lot more detail about what happens next uh, since I don't want to spoil everything. But uh, uh, the, um, uh, we, we follow the saga of what happens next and we've got some, some cool illustrations that were made for the book by Weta Workshop in New Zealand uh, including a, a new one that we just released digitally yesterday or the day before. Um, I can't tell can't because I'm on book tour, someday, someday that was not today. Uh, and as um, um, so you can see it, yeah, there's still an, kind of an exclusive, uh, I think, on io9 and Gizmodo, uh, but eventually it'll kind of go up on the website, you can see it anywhere. So um, I didn't know if you wanted to, do, are we going to talk or do talk, questions? questions? Like okay. Then. Okay. Do you have a, do you want to? Start with something? Or?
1: Uh, seven, seven Eves. Oh. I've heard about the seven moons, but I have a feeling that's not the seven Eves. Tell us where the seven comes from. Well, you know, seven. Get ready for questions.
2: Seven's just a, a magic number, right? So, uh, <laughs> and, and it could have been some other number, but at some point I figured out that seven Eves was a palindrome. And at that point, it's like,
1: okay. I missed that. I didn't get it, it was forward and backward. Yeah.
0: All right. <laughs> the whole novel's not a palindrome. <laughs>
1: no,
2: but it was released on 5 1915, which is also a palindrome. Pub- publishers, they think of everything.
1: Uh, I got to see an early version, not so well, latish early version of this book, because um, he sent it to Ryan Phelan and me in connection with Revive and Restore, because there's some biotech in there. And I don't think I give away too much if I ask you to talk about where the seven in relation to biotech comes from.
2: Oh yeah, the the uh, uh, the black-footed ferret. Uh-huh. Yeah. So the um, uh, the black-footed ferret is a, a predatory animal that uh, eats prairie dogs. Uh, and there used to be a lot of them, because there used to be a lot of prairie dogs. And then farmers came and killed almost all of the prairie dogs. And so the, the population of black-footed ferrets crashed. And it, it got as low as seven, I guess. And um, so um, the, uh, it's, I guess now it's being rebuilt. I don't know if they're, I don't know what the status of it is. But uh, the, the, the problem in general when you're trying to, to, to build a population back up from a very small bottleneck is uh, the loss of what's called heterozygosity, so sort of genetic diversity in the, the species, uh, you know, which is kind of a fancy way of, of talking about the incest problem. Uh, so um, uh, I, I, I gather that there have been some efforts uh, made to, um, uh, to address that uh, by, by intervening directly uh, and, and sort of monkeying around with the uh, with their genetic code, which is kind of the only way you can get that heterozygosity back once it's been, uh, uh, once it's been lost. So uh, I probably butchered that, but th- th- at least that's the, mm. the sort of cartoonish understanding of it that, uh, that this book is kind of based on. Because what, what happens um, I- in the book is that there's a similar bottlenecking phenomenon where the po- total population of breeding humans gets re- reduced to a very small number. No prizes for guessing what that number is. Uh, and and it has to be built back up. But fortunately they've got access to a, a fully featured uh, genetic engineering lab and somebody who knows how to use it. Uh, and so um, uh, it leads to a number, uh, well, to one I- interesting conversation about, about uh, uh, the the ethics of of meddling with the, the human genome, what what the goals of that meddling should be, uh, and uh, and that kind of becomes the basis for the the latter part of the book.
1: I can fill in a little bit of the uh, what happened to the black-footed ferrets. That was all dead right. Okay. Uh, black-footed ferrets went extinct twice, and they may go extinct again. <laughs> uh, they were down to just a few in South Dakota, and people were keeping an eye on it. This is an obligate predator. This is a, an animal that eats only prairie dogs, and so if there's no prairie dogs, there's no predator. That's it, and that was the situation. They got some prairie dogs back. They got, and there were these a small population, and they were done in by a canine distemper. They all died, so they'd gone extinct. Sorry, How's was that. But then, in the Teton, Wyoming. Uh, some dog came brought in a dead ferret. Somebody said, "Recently dead." <laughs> Where did that come from? They tracked it down and they found 13 uh, still living wild black-footed ferrets. It's a beautiful little animal, but a long, totally active, lives about a year and a half. But you know, 60 years and a year and a half. It's fast, cute, charismatic. And um, they realized that probably they were going to lose them, so. Fish and Wildlife took them into a captive breeding program, which has now been going for 30 years, based in Fort Collins, Colorado. And there's some in various zoos, in the Washington Zoo and so on. And uh, of those 13 animals, just seven uh, were able to reproduce in a way that their genes then went into the gene pool. And so they had the seven eaves problem, the seven founders. There's now have been probably 4,000 kits born and at this point, there are several hundred living, many of them in the wild, some still in captivity, but they have the inbreeding problem. That basically cousins, not even cousins anymore, really close cousins are mating with cousins and you're starting to get kinky tails and not so good at reproduction and things like that. So U.S. Fish and Wildlife came to revive and restore knowing we're doing the extinction. They said, you know, can you help pre- prevent an animal from going extinct and do some uh, biotech in relation to these black-footed ferrets to uh, restore their heterozygosity in some fashion. Just one further story on that, which is that it turns out the frozen zoo had cryopreserved two black-footed ferrets over 30 years ago. This is a San Diego Zoo. And those two ferrets are not part of the seven.
2: Oh, great, okay.
1: So we're now in the process of moving toward cloning, because that's you know, viable cells with viable DNA, cloning those two animals, and we will Take it up to potentially nine founders, and then other things are going on in relation to disease and so on. So, thank you yet again. You're totally in league with the Long Now Foundation. Yeah, it's all a secret plot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Questions here, right here. Kevin Kelly, speak up.
0: And we should repeat the
1: questions yeah. for the live feed. You had a peculiar uh, weakness for. Um, Past generations of uh, universally despised reviled subgroups. And mm-hmm. We're thinking of maybe the pilgrims. So, are there any subgroups today that are universally reviled that you think might be interesting to people in the future? Are there any uh, subgroups now, Kevin Kelly asked, that might be that are universally reviled now that will be of interest to in the future? Well, of course, now it's it's not
2: considered okay to just. Universally revile anyone right so, so we 've all become much more discreet uh, about that kind of thing. It, it used to be okay to uh, to just write off whole slabs of, of the human race um, as being uh, just uh, impossible to uh, to accept um, and that is a good question man um, the uh, by universally reviled I mean uh, so uh, probably the example I was uh, Talking about in that interview was the, the Puritans. So in mm. in uh, <clears throat> the Baroque cycle, the sort of the main, you know, to the extent there's a main character, it's a guy named Daniel Waterhouse who's a Puritan from a family of Puritans, uh, and um, and you know uh, it, it's been a very long time since uh, since the word Puritan was was used. In an admiring way, right? I mean, nobody uses even even in at the time it was coined, it was used as as a way of slamming, uh, uh, you know, uh, unpopular religious group. Um, so, uh, but the 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 pure, the people who were who were derided as being Puritans, you know, actually were some amazingly creative uh, people, and they they changed politics and. Uh, you know, they, they, they were kind of uh, forerunners of the, the ethos of, of entrepreneurialism and, and free enterprise. And that's true of uh, some other groups that were uh, poorly thought of at the time. Jews, Armenians, um, uh, some Indian uh, groups. Um, and so um, so that's all, that's all past. Uh, I would have to think about it as to whether there's anybody like that now.
1: Um, I'll bet Kevin Kelly's got some in mind. No, he doesn't, I don't know. I'll you don't? You so much for that. Yeah. Back here, question. Do
2: oh, you yeah. want to repeat the question?
1: Uh, do, why, why
2: don't you repeat them and I'll... I'll or do you...
1: I didn't hear the first part of it. So... Okay.
2: So sometimes science fiction is looked at not just as entertainment but as a guidepost to the future and was I thinking about that when I wrote this. Uh, I, think, I think one has to be careful uh, about that, because uh if it seems like you're being too prescriptive or didactic uh in in a book then uh people people just switch off right so you have to be really careful about that kind of thing uh the um uh, i i think the 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 most i tried to do was to uh um, maybe highlight or bring to people's attention some technologies or some ideas that I personally find interesting. Uh, So um, like a minor example is that uh, at one point they make a ship out of ice. They get a piece of of a comet and they bring it back and they they use it as structural material to make a big ship, spaceship, and they mix it with fibrous stuff to make a a thing called pycrete, which is a real thing. If you mix... Mm -hmm sawdust and water and freeze it, uh, you get this pretty strong structural material that floats. And during World War II, there, were, uh, there was a plan to actually make unsinkable aircraft carriers out of this stuff and just basically ram them up onto the shore of Normandy. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that never happened. Uh, but um, uh, so, uh, you know, so that makes, a, that makes an appearance. And uh, I've got another kind of abiding interest in a lost... Uh, a branch of physics which has to do with the physics of moving chains, mm. um, which is related to the, the physics of bullwhips and why they break the sound barrier. And so I ended up working that in. Um, but I had to be nudged into it. Um, I have a, a friend in um, Seattle who's a British uh, mathematician, uh, Arthur Champernan, who um, read the, an early draft of the book and he objected to something which was that in late, late in the book someone gets from the surface of the earth uh, to geosynchronous orbit in a way that's generally pretty graceful and you know, doesn't involve rockets, you know, uses big machines and harvesting energy from the atmosphere and kind of a, a different take on, on how to, to get to orbit. And, uh, but at one point they, they were using a rocket uh, to complete part, you know, one leg of this journey. And he, he wasn't okay with that. So, you know, that kind of ruins the whole thing, that's gotta go, you know. And so you've gotta figure out a way to eliminate that rocket burn. And so that's when I uh, decided to try to shoehorn in this, this other kind of physics having to do with, with essentially making big bull whips and cracking them in a programmatic way to to, to make big changes in, in velocity.
1: Say a little more about how the chain stuff works. I need to see you move your hands to get a sense of what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> the um,
2: This is like a canned 90-minute tirade that I can give at any moment, so you've really got to be, be be careful, but uh, the um, there was a Scottish physicist named Aitken, John Aitken, who's got a namesake in this book who was a a friend and a protege of, of uh, the Thompson brothers, Lord Kelvin and, and James Thompson. And they had apparently noticed that if you get a loop of chain moving fast, like... Um, There's
1: some chain up there.
2: Yeah, so... I was looking around for uh, sometimes roll-up doors have
1: a... Oh, right. Yeah, we do have... Yeah, well, yeah, that's a good example. That's a light one.
2: So if that got moving fast, you would see the loop down at the bottom right next to your ear. That would spread out a little bit and become kind of stiff. It acts like it's almost alive uh, and uh, has to be kind of moving. And um, he had noticed this, and he built a bunch of machines in his parlor uh, to... um, uh, to examine this phenomenon, and some of them used hanging chains driven by a wheel at the top, and the some of them... The Exploratorium has those. A... Yeah, the Exploratorium has one, yeah. So that, this all started with him. Uh, one with the wheel at the bottom that drives the thing upward. And there's all kinds of crazy physical phenomena that, um, that arise from, from that physics. And he was the first guy to study it and, and figure it out. Uh, and then uh, the next person who looked at it was a French guy. Fifty years later, in the 1920s, a guy named Carrier, who's an astronomer, and he had noticed that the sound the whip makes when it cracks is just like the sound made by a high-velocity rifle bullet when it goes by you. Mm-hmm. So this is a Frenchman writing in the 20s about that. One senses maybe there's some un. un- Pleasant experiences in his recent past that made him think of it, but so he built a contraption he, he came up he was the first to come up with the idea that what whips do is break the sound barrier, and he built a contraption to find out if that was true and it 's this amazing steampunk thing that I want to reproduce one day it 's got he, he, what he needed was to take stroboscopic photos of the whip, but uh, there were no strobe lights, so he made this uh, contraption consisting of these big capacitors, these big laden jars, and he would crank them up with a Wimshurst machine until they were up to like 20,000 volts. And then he had a uh, what he literally calls a guillotine, which is a plank that would fall down two vertical rails and it would trip a series of switches as it as it went by and he could adjust the timing by moving the switches up and down. And each switch would discharge one of these laden jars across a spark gap that was at the middle of a parabolic reflector and illuminate the whip. As it, he had a whip-cracking machine. So as the whip was cracking, this thing would flash and make, it all was in the dark, so it would make exposures on a photographic plate. And that almost enabled him to prove his point, but um, the, uh, it wasn't quite granular enough. But he knew where. Now he knew where the crack was happening. So he made a new contraption. Which he made some wooden discs, fat wooden discs that were spinning at a very high velocity. And he painted them white. And before each experiment, he would smoke them so they were covered with uh, soot. And then he would get them spinning right by the crack of the whip. And as the whip snapped by, the shock wave propagating from its tip would blow the soot off of the rim of the disc and make a white streak on the disc. And because the disc is spinning, it wasn't a a vertical perpendicular streak, but it was a helical. It was an angled streak. And then by measuring the angle, he could read off the velocity at which the thing was moving. So he does all this. He pulls this whole thing off, and then he goes back to Aitken's work to get the physics, (laughs) and he tells the whole story of it and and kind of is the first guy to, to, to prove that and then the the final paper uh, not the final but the last one i got interested in was written in uh, the late 40s by a couple of german physicists at Göttingen, and the uh, um, uh, they had been contacted by an eye doctor at the, the the clinic and of course the way medicine works is that you know the local doctors will solve all the cases they know how to solve. And if they find something they can't help, they refer it up the food chain to the next doctor. And so things keep moving up. And so if, if you're the head of the eye clinic at Göttingen, it means you're the most eminent eye doctor in the German-speaking world. Okay. So one day this, this guy comes to work and in his waiting room is uh, a man uh, who's got floaters. He's, he can see little dark specks floating around in his vision, which is a very common thing. So this is like if you're the most important dermatologist in the world and somebody comes to see you about a freckle, right? Um, <laughs> but he, he looks into the guy's eye and he sees, tumbling around in the guy's vitreous humor, he sees little tiny metal rods. They're obviously metal. They're obviously man-made. <clears throat> um, and they're just floating around loose inside of his eyeball, which is perfectly undamaged. There's no, uh, no entry wound, <laughs> nothing like that. So he's completely mystified. He asks the guy, you know, what did you do during the war? Were you in an explosion or, you know, anything like that? And the guy goes, no, I, I didn't fight. You know, I was a civilian. Uh, well, what do you do for a living? Well, I drive a truck. Well, do you ever, like, Maybe stick your head out the window, or were you ever in a crash, you know, or anything like that? No, nothing like that, doctor. so eventually uh, he had to to give up and and write it off as a mystery of of science um, but then a, a, a few months later, a few months later, another guy shows up, same <laughs> symptoms, exactly the same thing, uh, no explanation for it, and then another and another. so he starts trying to put the pieces together and figure out what is the common thread among all of these people. And it turns out the one thing they all have in common is that they're drivers, which by then meant driving trucks. Uh, but during the war, uh, because we had targeted their, um, uh, the, the Germans' uh, uh, fuel production, there had been a lot of trucks lying around that couldn't be operated uh, because there was no fuel. So um, they had gone back to hauling them behind animals. And they had had to improvise harnesses and yokes and all that stuff because it was all gone. No one had used it for decades. Uh, And that was all easily invented from ropes and straps and whatever they had lying around. But the hard thing was getting whips uh, because whips have some pretty specific properties that they have to have if they're gonna crack correctly. But some genius figured out that one thing they had all over Germany by that point was collapsed buildings. And a lot of those buildings had running down the outside a braided copper grounding cable. Uh, and if you just went up to one of them and cut off a length of that stuff and, you know, did the right motion, you could get that thing to crack like a whip. And a, a thing that a lot of novice whipcrackers do is that they'll jerk the whip toward them to make it snap, which is really dangerous because it comes back at you. But it's a really easy way to, to get it to crack every time. Um, and so the, the doctor said, um, you know, did it ever happen when you were doing that? That you like would you know feel you know one of these sharp pains in your eye? And they said, Yeah, that happens sometimes, but you know, you just kind of blink it away, and a few minutes later, you know, it's like nothing ever happened. So he goes running across the campus to the physics department and he buttonholes a couple of physicists and he says, is it physically plausible that if you cracked a, a, a copper grounding cable like a whip that the tensile strength of the copper out at the end would get exceeded <laughs> to the point where it would snap? And if so, would, it, would the pieces be going fast enough that they could fly through the air for a few feet and penetrate somebody's eyeball and come to a stop inside the vitreous humor? So. The physicist, you know, I mean, this is all, the whole story is in a footnote. It's compressed <laughs> into a, a, a footnote on page one of this of this paper. And then the rest of the paper is them uh, working out all the physics of whip cracking and proving that, you know, all of those things could, could happen. Um, so, uh, as you can tell, that's been a kind of a personal uh, obsession of mine for... <laughs>
1: I'd say that story qualifies as stranger than fiction. (laughs) But speaking of fiction, um, one question I have, back on the didactic, you don't do didactic novel writing, but you have been a little didactic about the science fiction novels that get written. And the hieroglyph idea was being grumpy about, you know, endless negativity in current science fiction and fantasy.
2: Yeah, I I had to clarify that a bit because uh, books, written science fiction is very diverse. You can't generalize about it, you you shouldn't. Uh, I probably made a mistake early on by generalizing a little too much, but the science fiction we see on the screen is uniformly dystopian, gloomy, dark stuff, Um, and uh, that uh, is really getting on my nerves. So we tried to initiate a project to uh, get some people to write some more optimistic stuff. It was called Hieroglyph. It came out in September. So, anyway. Is it so, working? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a topic of conversation now. Um, the, uh, uh, um, but uh, I, I don't think there's any direct traceable results from it yet. Uh, but people are talking about it.
1: Yeah, I think science fiction writers are relatively easy to shame compared to some. The, yeah, but but I, yeah, I, would, I would say that yeah. one thing on that is, uh, this book involves the end of civilization, um, but it's not civilization's fault. And almost right. all of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a big difference. All these other things is climate change or nuclear or something like that. Right. Uh, yeah. Tone, yeah. Um, so I presume, you don't mind finishing your story, that uh, speculate or calculate that a giant whip can send a spacecraft to Geo to say a little more about that. And uh, yeah. yeah. So along those lines, so
0: besides promoting your next novel, what do you do? What do you think about what, you know, what's going on in your life besides uh, novels?
1: Two questions, a uh, small one and a big one. The small one is to say more about whipcracking into space and the big one is next novel uh, framing.
2: So on uh, on the first question n- n- no it's it, I doubt that a, a whip mechanism could do a delta v big enough to to do an orbital uh launch but um I do think it could it could do uh uh delta v's on the order of you know a few hundred or even a couple thousand meters a second which is sort of the realm of 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 existing whips and you know be easier to do in the vacuum of of space so If you envision a future in which we've got a huge amount of space architecture in place and moving things around becomes a routine operation, then it makes sense instead of having each thing you're moving be its own independent rocket, it makes sense to just basically use these things as as transfer stations to to toss toss stuff back and forth. Um, And then um, as as to, you know, how I use my time. uh, I I'm I've started on another book um which uh um I'm a couple hundred pages in I guess um and then um
1: was there a break between these two books at no, all that you no, just never just, put down the pen
2: I um I I tend to fall into a uh, a foul mood when when I'm not doing something when I'm not writing a book um hmm. and uh so uh I don't like uh to stop and also I'm sort of if, you know putting putting the long now hat on for a second, you know I am aware that uh I will not live forever, and so um you know hopefully I'll live for a while but uh, i- I wanted to break this habit of just stopping for a whole year you know between
1: between had you done that before
2: yeah pretty much mm-hmm. um, so um so I just decided to keep going uh, I'm also working part time for a company called Magic Leap, which is making um, augmented reality uh, hardware um, of a novel type, uh, and um, so uh, that's also taking up a bunch of my my time as well.
1: Framing yourself into a novel, uh, which is sort of the original question. The idea for this one sort of percolated for a couple of decades, probably a decade and a half. Yeah. Uh, is that usually the case that you're, you're, you've got a number of things out there percolating and yeah. one sort of comes to life or what Pretty
2: happens? much, yeah. Like um, the, the origin of, of Anathem was um, when Danny asked me to and me and several other people to make just back of napkin sketches of what the clock might look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, was, that would have been 1999 because he wanted it for a millennial web page. Uh, but I didn't start writing Anathem until 2005, maybe, and then uh, Reemdi was based on uh, the story of the Filipino uh, Filipino hacker who made a, a, a virus in uh, I think the early 2000s um, that went viral very very rapidly over the whole uh, the whole world, um, and uh, so that was probably another five to eight year gestation period. Um, So, yeah, these things tend to kind of sit there and ferment in the background for quite a long time before, you know, it's kind of like insects that, you know, spend a long time in the larval state and they come out and fly around for, you know, a little while.
1: There's a One story that artists tell each other that may or may not relate here, I'm reading a wonderful memoir by Sally Mann, the photographer, called Hold the Still. And in it, she mentions that photographers she knows and, I guess, other artists who sort of have a big ambitious thing they're working on, and they're grinding away on it, they're grinding away on it, and uh, it's very exciting at the beginning because it's all possibility and some of them are starting to play out and you realize you've got something that's live and it's taking you somewhere and you're completely excited. But by the time you get to the end of the project, it's all punctuation. You're just, yeah, yeah, yeah. grinding away and getting the last misspelling out of it or the print that's actually half-decent compared to what's in the negative or all that kind of thing. And she said what she'd learned from some other artists, like I guess in Taiwan, what's his name, um, that it's the healthy thing for an artist to do is as you get to that tiresome end game, have something else starting to crank up that yeah. is already getting you excited again. Yeah. So you don't have to spend a whole lot of time and I can't believe this is dragging on so long. Uh, can I just stop it? I hate myself, all of that. But you can go on to a new mode of excitement and then in your spare time finish the punctuation on the previous work. Is that what you're finding this time around?
2: Well, it's always been been the case. Uh, And it it used to be I would just get so uh, distracted by the punctuation, literally, uh, that uh, I wouldn't even try to start something. But, you know, uh, the more I do this, the more I realize that um, I can get bits of productive time out Mm -hmm. um, if I kind of budget my time well. And um, so, uh, yeah, I'm just trying to... Waste as little time as possible.
1: You're
0: here, so so we've got a question from the live stream. We we'll give a quick shout out to we've got a few dozen members and donors that are listening from hopefully all over the world uh, right you, now. Live streamers, yeah, uh, and we've got a, a few questions from them. I'll give you one right now. Alec uh, asked, uh, so if a if a catastrophe like what happens in seven eves were to happen in ten or hundred years, um, how should we be preparing for it today? Are there things that are going on now that uh, that that are examples of preparation for I guess this type of event or something similar. What are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, the uh, um, uh, <clears throat> the p- part of the essence of of the thing that happens in Seven Eves it's so weird and unpredictable that there's a, there's no way we could have prepared for it, uh, which um, um, it's almost an essential feature of a, an arc story. Whoa! This came out of nowhere. We, you know, it's too late. You know, we have to have to build an ark. Uh, so no, I mean, I, I think the best we can do is uh, is is maintain those features of the society that make us adaptable and flexible and able to to come up with with new solutions rapidly. Um, David Deutsch uh, writes about this really well in the beginning of Infinity. Uh, so what what Features a, a culture has to possess in order to be capable of dealing effectively with new stuff. Uh, so that, that's his most recent nonfiction book, *The Beginning of Infinity*.
0: What else you got? Uh, so Donna Teresa asks: During the research and writing process, uh, what did you find seemed to be an essential cultural difference between a spacefaring people versus a terrestrial people? How does that? into the book?
2: Well, I mean, uh, the, the, um, um, look, there's, a, there's a, a, a really broad generalization that has been made about the difference between American culture and Canadian culture. So it's, it's a generalization, it's probably wrong, it's, uh, it's very simplistic, but it's kind of interesting which is that um Canada was so huge and so cold and so you know such a vast area of, of wilderness that um uh you you couldn't do anything with it in terms of white person civilization without essentially stringing it together with railways and 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 um mm-hmm. and uh kind of having uh uh, a, a big gov- a, a large governmental program to to render the the place uh habitable um, <clears throat> at least by white people uh, uh whereas in the united states uh you know it was it seems to have been more of a, a just go out there and and do something kind of uh place um the um uh it's, it's a, an ineluctable feature of people living in space that uh, the, the go at your own mentality is not going to work. It's not going to work. It's, it's got to be more the uh, you know, building big infrastructure, uh, everyone getting along with each other in kind of a reasonable way, and, and keeping the, the uh, individualistic tendencies uh, kind of under control. Um, so um, I, I think that would be true of any culture that tried to live in space for a long time. You just can't go off by yourself and and do stuff there.
1: Is that why most of the characters in the book are female? Well, there's there's been a lot of um, uh,
2: research done on sort of long-term living in in space, and there's again we're <clears throat> we're kind of moving into generalization territory, but the um, there are some ways in which uh, in which women are thought to be uh, maybe a better fit for long term space travel, and uh, part of it is um, that the, their gonads are on the inside um, so less exposed to uh, to radiation and, and uh, if on the whole if you're smaller, you need less food and less oxygen, so it's really simple stuff like that, and you know for whatever reason uh, uh, you know cultural training or or what have you uh it it seems like um living together in 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 a confined space for a long time uh just doesn't seem to be a guy thing <laughs>
0: uh,
2: so um um again generalizations but uh uh, uh, I'll just say that that you know people have have kind of thought about gender in space, uh, and, and uh, according to them, uh, this isn't a, a terribly far-fetched uh, idea.
1: So. so there you are, a novelist writing inside a bunch of female characters, and you're not female, and you didn't do any hormone treatment. Uh, so what? That you know of. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh... You make all that up or you listen carefully to women or how'd you do that?
2: Well, um, I guess uh, just trying to to listen and um, um, just uh, to read a lot, um, use some common sense, uh, I don't know.
1: Some of your female early readers had advice on those matters or not? Uh, <clears throat> some of them.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: yeah. So. Andrew.
1: So thinking in thousands of years, what's easy, what's hard?
2: Yeah, well, the, um, you know, there's only a few things that last that long. Well, a few human things. Mm-hmm. Physical things can last that long pretty easily. But, uh, but human institutions, um, you know, companies don't last that long.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, families don't last that long. Uh, some, some things that last that long are cultures, um, religions, there are some universities that have been around for on the order of a thousand years. Okay. Um, cities. cities, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so naturally, one tends to think in terms of those kinds of institutions. Uh, when uh, uh, and, and, and and you can see that pretty clearly in in where um, you know those are the, the institutions that, uh, uh, that 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 feature prominently in that book. And in, in the case, of, uh, uh, in the case of, of Seven Eves, it's a different situation. And so things like cities and, and religions are, are kind of out of the picture for a while, but, but uh, there is a, a cultural continuity that's preserved over that time, which is a, a, a very conscious artificial thing that is, uh, is brought about by the decisions of the, the founders of the different cultures or races in, in the book. Uh, They've got specific agendas that they talk about in an explicit way and their conversation is recorded uh, for the ages and people are still watching that webcam footage 5,000 years later. So it's very strongly self-reinforcing in that way.
1: I'd say this is the strongest novelistic case ever of the novelistic idea that character is destiny uh, at the scale you speak of. Question in back. Just the way now. Okay, how about right here?
0: Yeah, um, Regarding your point about being didactic or the risk of being didactic and having people switch off, uh, does, I mean, keeping that in mind, does part of you, when you write a book, feel or wishes to have a, a teenager or someone even younger be totally inspired by, by a concept that you brought in? And, uh, and then become a you know, scientist and focus on that as it has happened in some cases? Or, or do you not care or don't want to care?
1: Just curious. Question about this inspiring is inspiring teenagers something uh, you have in mind? Well,
2: uh, I've been doing it long enough now that, uh, you know, uh, there's this, uh, uh, like at, at the reading last night a number of people came up and said, you know, things like, I read your books when I was a kid and it inspired me to become a software uh, engineer or a cryptographer or whatever. So I'm getting a lot of that now, um, and uh, uh, which makes me feel incredibly old. <laughs> especially when the, the person saying it appears middle-aged to me. Uh, <coughs> but uh, uh, they don't... Um, I, I think that... Um, if for anything to happen, uh, they have to actually read the book all the way through. And they're not going to do that if it's not a good story, a good yarn, with, with good characters. And so everything else is secondary to that. Uh, so that's what I was kind of getting at when talking about being didactic. I um, think If you are fulfilling the sort of first responsibility of telling a good story uh, that people enjoy reading, then that gives you a, a little bit of leeway to, um, uh, you know, to maybe sneak in a few inspirational moments or or uh, or, or ideas for people to think about. But um, it's got to be done somewhat somewhat cautiously.
0: You also wrote the Young Ladies Illustrated
1: Primer, I did. That inspired people. Uh, back here in the blue vest. Last question. This is yes. it. Okay, yeah. You
2: know, we just talked about how being agile is, you know, enable us to escape, you Well, I hear all the time from from people who who tell me that they're they're trying to do it, and they all mean different things, it turns out. So, some of them are thinking about the hardware of it, some the software, some about education. Uh, so that's a cool thing that people have not just one idea of what it is, but a, a whole spectrum of ideas and So i just smile and nod because I don't want to sort of privilege any one particular uh, uh, idea of of what it should be. Um, You know, the, you know, the the use of of technology in education is a little tricky uh, because it can lend itself to um, sort of facile, you know, we'll just buy a bunch of hardware and, and, you know, parachuted into to classrooms and then everything will be awesome, which, you know, that, that approach doesn't work very well. So, you know, it's, it's, education is no joke. It's a, it's a hard thing to, um, mm-hmm. to bring together uh, the right set of, of, uh, of conditions needed to, um, to make it work. And, um, you know, in the end, nothing seems to trump the influence of the home environment um, on, uh, on people's ability to learn. Just like there's all this kind of research which is like simultaneously inspiring and horrifying to the effect that the number of words a kid hears in the first couple of years of their life is pretty determinative of what they'll be able to do with their brain for the rest of their life. And there was actually a big internet, you know, fake, I uh, actually came up with a, uh, an acronym for this uh, fake, a FIMP, a fake internet moral panic. Um, there was a fimp a couple of weeks ago uh, about this, um, uh, this uh, uh, researcher in the UK who had suggested, I'm sure, in a tongue-in-cheek way, or in an effort to make a point, that, that uh, uh, affluent educated parents should stop reading to their kids so much because it was giving their, you know, provably, demonstrably, it was giving them an unfair advantage. Uh, you know, over over kids who didn't get that, that, that treatment, um, and um, uh, you can imagine um, you can imagine what happened uh, on the internet uh, when he said that. So, I mean, maybe maybe he was serious. I don't know, but I, I sort of doubt it. Um, so um, um, the uh, so that that trumps everything else so much that. Um, hmm. It, it makes me permanently a little skeptical of efforts to do anything um, in addition to or outside of of that family environment, um, which is somewhat depressing way to end this. But um, but but that's kind of how I see it. I, I don't I I don't know how to um, I don't know how to change it. I know that there are people working on it trying to. To, to reach out to parents who, who maybe were reared in a different tradition of how to raise your kid and get them to talk to their kids more. Uh, you know Maybe that's a, maybe that's something, I don't know. Anyway.
1: We'll end there. Yeah. And um, I have to offer you the challenge coin, ah. the long now challenge yeah. coin. It, it, it advises you to carpe millennium, okay. which I'd say you already do better than most. Yeah. Thank, Thank you, you very you. much. Neil, see you in the Thanks. Yeah.
0: Thanks for listening to The Conversations at the Interval. To find out more about our series and Long Now, go to theinterval.org or longnow.org. Thanks again.